Well, take your copy of God's Word and open it with me this morning to the Gospel of John chapter 6. We're picking up where we left off last week, John chapter 6, and we're going to look at the first 15 verses this morning. John chapter 6, we'll begin in a moment and in verse 1. Years ago, there was a fishing company off the coast of California, and every day they would bring in all the fish that they had caught, and they would clean them at a certain dock, and after cleaning them, they would take all of the scraps and they would throw them into the water for the pelicans. Now, the pelicans thought this was great, free food every day. Before long, they stopped fishing for themselves. They were content just to eat the scraps that were thrown to them. Well, one day, that fishing company actually discovered there was a market for those scraps. They stopped throwing them into the water for the pelicans. Every day, the pelicans continued to arrive thinking that it was dinner time only to leave with empty stomachs. After a while, those pelicans began to appear emaciated, unsightly. The locals wondered what was going on. They called in some of the experts to study them and find out what was happening, and they came to the conclusion that the pelicans had forgotten how to fish. They had an abundance of food right there beneath the surface of the water, but they did not know how to access it. I fear that many of us are like those pelicans. We have everything we need in Christ Jesus. We have all of the power we need. We have all of the resources we need. We have all of the wisdom that we need. We have all of this and so much more in our relationship with Christ and yet, like those pelicans, sometimes we starve ourselves spiritually because we have forgotten what we have. Now, we're reminded of what we have so many times in Scripture. I love 2 Peter 1.3. It says that we have everything we need for life and godliness. And Ephesians 1.3 says that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Ephesians 3.20 says that God can do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. All of these verses drive home the same point, which is the title of the message I want to share with you today, Jesus is enough. We're going to look at a passage of Scripture that is very well known to many, the feeding of the 5,000. And it's not an accident that John places this story right here after chapter 5. Now remember in John chapter 5, we saw seven claims that Jesus made about himself. He claimed some things that no one else ever claimed. 
He claimed to be equal with God and at work with God and loved by the Father. He claimed to have the ability to impart life. He claimed to have the authority to judge mankind and the power to raise the dead. He claimed that he was worthy of the same honor as his father. He made all of those claims, and then in the last few verses of chapter 5, which we studied last week, he called some witnesses to the stand to testify on his behalf that he is indeed all of these things. And then we come to this story at the beginning of John chapter 6. He places this story here the feeding of the 5,000, because this is exactly what someone should be able to do if they really are all of those, clean, those things that Jesus claimed to be. Now, as we read these verses, I want us to think about three moments in life when we especially need to remind ourselves that Jesus is enough. First of all, Jesus is enough when we face an impossible task. Jesus is enough when we face an impossible task. Look at verse 1. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him, because they saw his signs which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. The Bible says that Jesus and the disciples crossed the Sea of Galilee. Now, this is the one miracle outside of the Passion story that shows up in all four of the Gospels, and all four of the Gospel writers will give us details that the others do not give. John does not mention this, but in Mark's gospel, we're told that the reason why they crossed the Sea of Galilee is because on the other side, they were so busy, they did not have time to eat. You ever been so busy, you literally did not have time to eat? And then he said they crossed over because they were tired and they needed rest. Jesus and the disciples desperately needed a vacation, but they did not get one because the people figured out where they were going and they met them on the other side. Verse 2 says, a great multitude followed him. And if we stop right there, that would be great. A multitude of people following Jesus. Praise the Lord. Amen. But then he adds, because they saw his signs. They weren't following Jesus for Jesus' sake. They were following Jesus because of the things they wanted to get from him. Listen, they were following the right person, but for the wrong reasons. Now, Jesus is being interrupted at this moment. And I've noticed you can learn a lot about a person by how they respond when someone interrupts them. How do you respond when someone interrupts you? Jesus was constantly being interrupted when we read the Gospels, and he always responded with grace. 
Because Jesus understood that interruptions are usually divine appointments. Normally, when an interruption appears, it's God putting you where he wants you to be or God teaching you something that he wants you to learn. Well, in this case, how did Jesus respond to this interruption? Luke's gospel says that Jesus spent time healing those who were sick. And then he spent time teaching them and preaching about the kingdom of God. But then after a while, the day was getting long, it was getting late, and in Luke's gospel, it says that the disciples begged Jesus to send the crowd away, but Jesus had a better idea. Look at verse 4. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, He said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Notice in verse 5, it says Jesus lifted up his eyes. In Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel, it says he lifted his eyes and had compassion on them. That Greek word for compassion is the same word from which you get the word guts. Have you ever seen something that when you saw it, it so shook you, it so moved you, it felt like someone had just punched you in the guts? That's how Jesus responded when he looked at the crowd. That's how Jesus feels even now when he sees the broken and the brokenhearted that surround us. That's how we should feel if we are like Jesus. Jesus is filled with this compassion as he sees thousands and thousands of people. And yet I can't help but think that there might have been a gleam in Jesus' eye. Maybe there was a grin on his face when he turned to Philip and said, where will we go to buy bread for all of these people? Someone once said, when God is getting ready to do something wonderful, he gives us a difficulty. But when God is getting ready to do something even more wonderful, he gives us an impossibility. Jesus knew that he was asking Philip to do something that, humanly speaking, was impossible. And that's why verse 6 says that Jesus was testing him. Now, why was he testing Philip? Maybe because Philip was actually from that area. He was the one guy to whom you could go and say, hey, what's open at this hour? Where can we go to buy bread? But the right answer to the question Jesus was asking was not, well, there's a bakery over there on 8th Street. The right answer to the question was not a place, but a person. The right answer was simply Jesus. And make no mistake about it. Jesus really was asking Philip a trick question. Don't you love it? When someone asks you a trick question, gets me every time. 
Yes, this was a trick question because there was no place to buy that much bread. But even though it was a trick question, it was a question that Philip and the disciples should have been able to answer. And you know why they should have been able to answer this question? Because they had already seen Jesus turn the water into wine. They had already seen him heal the nobleman's son. They'd already seen him heal the man who was lame for 38 years. They had already seen those miracles that Jesus performed the last time he was in Jerusalem for the Passover. They had seen all of these things. It was actually logical that the same Jesus who did all of that would also be able to provide food for so many people. Jesus had given them every reason to believe. And I wonder how many times that's true for us as well. He's proven himself again and again. He's given us every reason to trust him. You see, Jesus always meets you where you are, and he calls you to that next step of faith. Wherever you are in your walk with Christ, There's always a next step of faith. There's always another level of trusting God. And Jesus is always inviting you there. Jesus asked this question of Philip because he was more concerned about his lack of faith than he was their lack of food. Lack of food never stopped God, but a lack of faith, on the other hand, will. Jesus tested Philip. He tested the disciples because he wanted them to learn that there are no impossible situations with Jesus. He wanted them to learn that lesson from Luke 18, 27 that says, The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Listen, there is not a problem you have that Jesus cannot solve. There's not a hunger you have that Jesus cannot satisfy. There's not a thirst you have that Jesus cannot quench. There's not a hurt that you have that Jesus cannot heal. There's not a question you have that Jesus cannot answer. Jesus is sufficient. And he wants them to learn that he is sufficient even when we face what for us would be an impossible task. Now, there's another time when we need to remind ourselves of this truth. We need to remember that Jesus is enough when our resources are limited. When our resources are limited. Look at verse 7. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may have a little Do you notice that Philip is answering a question that Jesus never asked? Jesus never asked them, how much will it cost? He asked, where will we go to get bread? But Philip apparently was one of those guys who had a calculator for a brain. Do you know anybody like that? Verse 10 says that there were 5,000 men present, but then Matthew's gospel points out that that number did not include the women and the children. 
depending on how many of the men brought their families with them, who knows? There could have been 10,000, maybe 15, maybe 20,000 people who were present that day. And so Philip looked at the crowd, kind of made an estimate of how many he thought were there. And then in his mind, he multiplied that number by the cost of just a single slice of bread. And he quickly arrived at the conclusion that 200 denarii would not be enough. You understand a denarius was the wage that a man would earn, a typical worker, in one day. So you take whatever was the typical wage back in those days and you multiply it by 200. It's kind of like Philip was saying to Jesus, um, excuse me, but if I happen to have $40,000 in my pocket, which I don't, even that would not be enough just to buy everybody here a snack. Now, God bless Philip. God bless people like Philip. Philip was a planner. He was organized. He was a detailed person. We need people like Philip in our lives. We need people like Philip in our churches. But Philip made one mistake. He did not include Christ in his calculations. Always include Christ in your calculations. Now, Philip wasn't the only one who made this mistake. Look at verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish. But what are they among so many? Here comes Andrew. His claim to fame is that he was Simon Peter's brother. How would you like that? Oh, I know you, you're so-and-so's brother. Now, he was not a prominent individual amongst the disciples. He didn't write any books in the New Testament. None of his sermons are recorded for us. But one thing we can say about Andrew, every single time he appears in the Bible, what is he always doing? He's always bringing someone to Jesus. I like that. This time, Andrew is bringing a little boy to Jesus, and he had five loaves and two fish. Now, you need to keep in mind, these loaves were not like the loaves of bread you would buy at Winn-Dixie or Publix. These were not like those big Cuban loaves of bread about the size of a baseball bat. No, these were uh, small wafers about the size of a small pancake. And understand that these fish, these were not like giant salmon fillets. These were like little sardines. This lunch is something that could have fit inside of a folded napkin. And I don't know about you, but when I think about that lunch, my mind goes towards that boy's mama preparing his lunch that day. She had no idea as she packed his lunch, how many people would be fed from that little lunch before that day was over. Well, Andrew, he looked at that lunch, and he made the same mistake as Philip. What are they among so many? It wasn't much. But Andrew forgot something. He forgot that little 
is much when God is in it. Little is much when God is in it. It's not about the size of the lunch. It's about the size of the Savior who is holding it. Some of you may look at yourselves and you look at your lives the same way Andrew looked at that lunch. You look at your talents and you look at your abilities and you look at your gifts and your resources and you say, that's not much, can't do much with that. Ladies and gentlemen, it's not about what you have, it's about who has you. This little boy did not have much, but the little he had, he offered to Jesus, and whatever you give to Jesus can be transformed by Jesus. That's exactly what he did in verse 10. Then Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. The people sat down. Jesus gave thanks. He prayed before he ate. We should as well. Then it says he took the loaves. Matthew's gospel says that he broke the loaves. Isn't it interesting that Jesus had to break it before he could use it? And that's a pattern that we see throughout the Word of God, that God uses broken people and he uses broken things so that he alone gets the glory. But he took those loaves and he broke them and it says he distributed them to the disciples. The verb tense in the original language means that he kept on distributing the food to the disciples. He continued to multiply the food. That means that in order to feed the crowd, the disciples had to keep going back to Jesus again and again and again. I wonder if every time they came back to refill that basket, if maybe Jesus had this I told you so look on his face, but they had to keep going back to Jesus and likewise for us to do what God's called us to do, we have to keep going back to Jesus in prayer, in worship, to receive instructions from his word. Now, none of the Gospels explain to us exactly how Jesus did it. We just know that it was a miracle. Verse 14 calls it a sign. It was a supernatural act. And we will see how the people responded to this miracle in a few moments. But let me just pause and tell you what did not happen here this is not a thing where the little boy was willing to share his lunch and then when all of the people who were hoarding their food saw that he was willing to share, then they were willing to share, and then when everybody shared, everybody had enough. Yes, I've actually heard people preach this passage that way. Again, this was a supernatural act. And one part of this story that many times we miss when we tell it and when we study it 
is that Jesus was just repeating a miracle from the Old Testament, but on a bigger scale. There's this whole other story that we're not going to turn to, but you can read it later in 2 Kings chapter 4 involving the prophet Elisha. And the Bible says that Elisha told his servants, I want you to take these 20 loaves and feed these 100 men. And his servant said, that's not impossible. I can't do that. This is not enough to feed so many. Elisha said, do it and see if there's not food left over. So notice what happens here. Elisha took 20 loaves and fed 100 men. Jesus took less food, two fish and five loaves, and he fed thousands upon thousands. Part of the lesson of the story is that Elisha performed a miracle and Jesus performed a greater miracle because Jesus is greater than even Elisha. That's part of the point of the story. I'm reminded of this mom who had two boys that were always fighting and they didn't like to share. She was trying to teach them to share. And one day she went into the kitchen and saw that once again, they were fighting over who would get the last cookie. And this mom said, you know what? This is my chance. So she sat them down and said, now boys, what have I been telling you again and again and again? If Jesus were here and there were just one cookie left, what would Jesus do? And one little boy said, well, Jesus would break that cookie and make 5,000 more. <laughs> I think that little boy had a point. Well, Philip, you recall from earlier, he was calculating how to give everybody the minimum. Jesus gave them the maximum. Verse 11 says that the people ate as much as they wanted Look at verse 12. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore, they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. How many disciples were there? How many baskets were left over? Is that a coincidence? Absolutely not. One basket for every disciple to carry. I think Jesus wanted them to sweat a little bit. I think he wanted them to grunt a little bit, carrying around those heavy baskets full of leftovers. And I don't know how long they had to carry them, but every single step carrying that basket around was one more reminder that Jesus is enough. He is enough when our resources are limited. Let me share with you one final truth, and I believe this is the most important truth that we see in this story. We need to remember that Jesus is enough to meet our greatest need. Jesus is enough to meet our greatest need. Oh, it would be a tragedy for us to stop reading after verse 13 and not read these next two verses. Verse 14 says, then those men 
when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Now, that's not something you say unless you've just seen a miracle. Verse 15, therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Some of the people saw this miracle, and they put two plus two together. They said, this man is the prophet. And I want you to notice, they did not say, this man is a prophet. That would have been something completely different. They said, this man is truly the prophet. And by the prophet, this was a reference to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 18. When God said, one day I will raise up a prophet like no other. And this prophet will be a mediator between me and the people similar to Moses. And God said, I will put my words in his mouth. Everyone understood that this was a reference to the Messiah. So see what happens. In verse 14, they see the miracle and they call Jesus the Messiah. And then in verse 15, they are ready to declare him king, to swear allegiance to him and follow him into battle. But there was a problem. You know what the problem was? Before the, cr the crown comes the cross. Before glory comes agony. And the greatest need they had was not a political savior to save them from Roman oppression. The greatest need they had was a spiritual savior to redeem them from their sin. And for that, Jesus had to die on the cross because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and because the wages of sin is death and because our sin is so hideous in the sight of a holy God that it actually took nothing less than the death of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, on the cross to atone for your sin and for mine. That's what it took. And because it was not yet time for Jesus to die upon the cross, the Bible says he departed from them. I said last Sunday that every miracle has a message. The message of this miracle we see later on in verse 35 where Jesus said, I am the bread of life. We'll talk about that more in a couple of weeks. But listen, the purpose of this miracle was not to feed them. The purpose of this miracle was not even to impress them. The purpose of this miracle was to teach them that Jesus is the bread 
of life. And in John chapter 6, this bread was broken to feed the multitude just as Jesus' body would be broken to save the world. In John chapter 6, the disciples questioned how it would be possible for one boy's lunch to feed thousands and thousands of people. And today, people question how it's possible for the death of one man on the cross to atone for billions of people. Someone will ask, how can Jesus offer salvation to everyone by laying down his life? Maybe one man could die for another man. Maybe that we could understand. But how is it possible for the suffering and the death of one man to be enough to atone for the sin of every man, woman, boy, and girl, past, present, and future, and to save them for all of eternity it's possible because of who that one man is. Amen. It's possible because Jesus is the Son of God who was in the beginning God and with God, who was the Word become flesh because He was sinless and perfect in every way. It's possible because Jesus is worth more than everyone else who was ever born. It has been said many times by different theologians over the years that if you were to take a scale... And on one side of that scale, you take everything in this world that is beautiful and everything in this world that is precious, everything that is valuable, and everyone. And on the other side of that scale, you put Jesus. Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. And that is why His death on the cross is enough, indeed more than enough, to pay for the sin of every one of you here today and every person who has ever been born. That's why the death of Jesus is more than enough to save whosoever will come to Him and believe upon Him and receive Him as Savior and Lord. Would you join me as we pray? Oh God, we thank you for reminding us once again that Jesus is enough. God, forgive us for the many times we forget that. Forgive us for the many times that we doubt that. And help us to take this simple truth and apply it to our lives and live like we believe it. We thank you that Jesus really is enough to meet every need in our lives. And he is enough and more than enough to save whosoever shall call upon his name. We thank you that Jesus really is the bread of life. God, I pray for anyone in this room who's hearing my voice here or anyone listening online right now who has never come to Christ and placed their faith 
in him as Savior and Lord, God, that this would be that moment. That they would recognize that we are all sinners and the wages of sin is death. And that's why Jesus had to die and he rose again so that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. God, I pray this would be that moment of sweet surrender when they simply call upon him and say, Jesus, right now I trust in you. Save me. Father, I pray for everyone who's here, who's listening, that even now we would invite your spirit to work and show us those things that we need to see. Help us to examine ourselves, that we would confess that unconfessed sin, that we would surrender ourselves to you completely afresh and anew so that we would observe the Lord's Supper in a manner that is worthy. Speak to us in these next moments. We pray in Jesus' name.